0: invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles here, you should find that on page 975. And if you need a Bible, uh, maybe you could just raise your hand and somebody in the back could bring you one. Um, Our desire here um, at Messiah's Reform Fellowship is not for me to uh, simply pontificate or give my opinions, but for us to open up what is contained for us in God's Word, to draw it out for us. And so we've been working our way through uh, the letter to the Galatians that the Apostle Paul had written, and as it continues to speak to the church uh, even today. And so here in Galatians chapter 5, we're going to come across probably a familiar phrase, namely the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll ask the question, and we'll try answering as well, why the Apostle Paul all of a sudden uh, turns to gardening imagery and arboreal imagery, uh, speaking of trees, and the Christian as a kind of tree bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So we'll draw that out as well as we jump into this passage. But Galatians chapter 5, begin reading... At verse 16 to the end of the chapter. This is the holy and inspired word of God. The Apostle Paul says to the church, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So far from God's holy word, let's pray that He might bless this word to us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken. And so, Father, may your word uh, come to us as powerful. Uh, May it come to us that it might change us as we look to Jesus Christ, the one to whom we belong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the title of the sermon suggests, namely, Bearing the Fruit of the New Creation Today, there is something peculiar and there's something quite odd to the world about your life as a Christian. What your life produces as a Christian is something that tastes very odd to the world around us. And the reason for this is because as a Christian, you are bearing fruit, your life is producing that which does not belong properly to the present evil age. I use that language because the Apostle Paul used that language earlier. If you just turn back a page to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, there it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, right? And so Paul is saying that there is a kind of world order. There is an age in which we find ourselves in from which we have been delivered and we've spoken about what that means and how Christ has delivered us by faith alone trusting in him alone and he's saying that you've been delivered from the present evil age and what your life is now producing and what it tastes like to those outside of the church is quite odd because it does not properly belong here it is imported fruits into the present age you are bearing as a christian the fruit of the new creation that Jesus Christ is bringing. Now, the reason I use the present evil age was because the Apostle Paul used that phrase. And the reason I'm speaking of the new creation is because the Apostle Paul will also use that phrase. Turn to the ending of Galatians chapter 6. Verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, right? We had been speaking earlier about how these Judaizers, these false teachers were coming to the Christians in Galatia and they were bringing a a kind of legalistic gospel to them which really is no gospel at all. They were requiring of them to submit again to the order and the structure and the rigidness of the Mosaic Covenant, which, as we had said, was good for a time, but with the coming of Christ, has fallen away. Now the people of God have come into adulthood. They've come into the freedom as sons, so that we're no longer under the rigidness of the old covenant, but now uh, we are in the freedom to follow the law of Christ, as Paul speaks about. So, right, so Paul, that's why Paul refers to circumcision and uncircumcision. Circumcision was kind of the center of the Mosaic covenant. It defined God's people for a time, but that has fallen away and passed away with the coming of Christ and the freedom of his church. But again, notice what he says, verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor nor uncircumcision, right? He's saying it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or you're not. You can be and that's fine. You might not be and that's fine. But what does matter? He says there, but... A new creation, but a new creation, right? The Apostle Paul has been telling the church that the way out of the present evil age, right, the way of deliverance out of bondage in Egypt, the present evil age, is one that goes by faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone, who gave himself for us and who has loved us, and that now we are headed to the promised land of a new creation, And what you are producing in your life today as a Christian, by the Spirit, is imported fruit of the new creation. It's why your life looks different, tastes different to the world around us. So Paul here is contrasting the way of living of two different worlds, in a sense. The way of living of the new creation that Christ brings us into, one marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And a way of living that belongs to the present evil age, the works of the flesh. That's the antithesis, that's the divide, that's the opposition that Paul is drawing out for us here. And so we're going to flesh these things out under uh, three points, uh, drawing from uh, the arboreal or the, the gardening, you could just simply say, imagery of the fruit of the Spirit, and so, first, we want to think about the gardener of the new creation. Secondly, we want to think about the instrument or the gardener's instrument of the new creation. And then, lastly, we want to think about the fruit of the new creation. So, the gardener of the new creation, the instrument of the new creation, and then finally, the fruit of the new creation. So, first, the gardener who is the one who cultivates the fruit? That belongs to the new creation. Well, it's quite interesting the way in which John's gospel parallels the book of Genesis, right? If you were to read John chapter 1, John echoes the language of creation when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? John very intentionally has Genesis 1 in mind, the creation account. And it's quite interesting that John, as he opens up the good news of the gospel, draws that parallel between the coming of Christ and the original creation. But notice also how John's gospel comes to its conclusion and comes to kind of its grand climax with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came For us, to save us from our sins. Lived a perfect life. Died in the place of sinners on our behalf. Was raised to new life. And notice how John, again, who already had Genesis in mind. Notice what John says about Jesus' resurrection. John chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. Just listen carefully. Or you can turn there as well. But listen carefully. It says this, that... Now in the place where he Jesus was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid in which no one had yet been laid so because of the jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand they laid Jesus there why does john go out of his way to tell us that there was a garden We'll answer that in a moment. We know that Mary Magdalene, among other women, come to the tomb also, and they run. They find the tomb that is empty, and they call the other disciples. They come and they see, and they kind of go back discouraged, not sure what took place. Where is the body of her Lord? But Mary remains in a really beautiful picture of of saving faith and what that looks like, clinging to Christ, not wanting to depart. But Mary remains. And as Mary is there weeping at the tomb, the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, she's there weeping and she hears a voice. And the voice says, woman, John chapter 20, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then notice how John speaks of Mary's response to these words supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus says simply to her, Mary, and she knew it was her Savior. She knew it was the Lord. Supposing him to be the gardener, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb. Why does John want us to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes place in a garden. I think he's reminding us of, again, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. that, That what Jesus Christ's resurrection means is a new creation. The old that had been cursed, the old that had been corrupted by the entrance of sin and death, Jesus Christ conquers it to bring about a new creation and it's quite telling that Mary mistaken mistakes Jesus as the gardener. In one sense she was of course mistaken, he wasn't the gardener, but in another sense she's actually quite right. Jesus is the gardener of the new creation and it's he who begins to cultivate spiritual fruit in the life of his people. Jesus Christ is the gardener of the new creation who cultivates the life of his people who belong to him. Right, that's that's John's, uh, rather the Apostle Paul, John's point, but also the Apostle Paul's point as well. Though he's going to go on to speak about the work of the Spirit, and then we're going to talk about that, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the Spirit is given by Christ. The Spirit is won for us by Christ. And Jesus pours out his spirit, think of the day of Pentecost, in order that the spirit might then, and we're not going to jump to our second point yet, but that the spirit might be the instrument by which he cultivates in our life spiritual fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on as we're going to see. But Jesus Christ, for us to see this, is the one who cultivates the spiritual life of his people and this reminds us that the work then of producing the fruit of the Spirit is ultimately the work of Jesus Christ. I was talking to my wife Susanna, and she had reminded me of this quote. I'm paraphrasing here because I don't actually—I should have looked it up. I just kind of have it on top of my head here. But she reminded me of this great quote that I believe Sinclair Ferguson had given in his book, The Whole Christ. And he had made this point saying that there is nobody more concerned and more desirous of your sanctification, your growth in godliness and in holiness, than Jesus Christ himself. He is the gardener of your soul. He is the one who cultivates his people. It's his work that he accomplishes. Um, in his people. This is something that we've uh, seen throughout Galatians. So, just to kind of maybe reflect on a few verses here, if I can. We already noted Galatians chapter 1 4, where it says, you know, how, in what sense is Jesus the gardener of the new creation cultivating us? Well, first and foremost, as Galatians 1 4 told us, he delivers us. Right? He brings us out of the, the, the old soil of the, of, the, of the present evil age in which we're producing bad fruit as bad trees. Right? He, he takes us and puts us in a new creation. Right? He delivers us and brings us to a place of good soil that we might be good trees producing good fruits. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 also tells us this. The Apostle Paul writes, I'm astonished, as he's worried about the Galatians, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ is part of what is received that we might, again, bear fruit, that Christ might cultivate us. Verse 16 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that as he went from city to city, the message that he proclaimed was a proclamation of Jesus Christ himself. He proclaimed Christ that, that again, his, these people might produce good fruits. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, you get these beautiful words from the Apostle Paul. He says that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made right with God, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He goes on to say also, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, And gave himself for me. And we can keep going on, right? The Apostle Paul has constantly directed our attention to Christ as the one alone who can deliver us and the one alone who can cultivate in our life the good fruits of the Spirit. And so that's kind of the wider context as we jump more specifically into these verses and Paul's discussion of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And so we've seen, firstly, then, the gardener of the new creation. Jesus Christ is not interested, necessarily, in just cultivating a people who can thrive in the present evil age. Jesus' primary concern in your life is that you cultivate the fruits of the creation that is to come, the new creation, Jesus' primary concern in your life is not that we simply just be comfortable here, and not simply that we just thrive in the present evil age, and not simply that we can just um, advance in the present evil age, right? That's often how the church um, distorts the message of Jesus Christ, right? Here are ten ways that you can do better in in the present evil age. Now, those things might be helpful, and it's not to say that, you know, we can't, have any sense of wisdom and how to navigate this present evil age. But Jesus' primary concern in your life as the gardener of the new creation is that you be fitted and produce the fruit that belongs to what is to come. And that often means that our lives produce that which the world hates and the world um, seeks to destroy and the world seeks to rid themselves of different imagery, but you have the imagery of the world in the darkness, loving the darkness, hating the light. The Christian comes as light. The Christian comes as producing and tasting like the fruit of the new creation. And this, again, is something that Jesus prioritizes, and therefore something we ought to prioritize as well. Is your life producing fruit that tastes like the present evil age? Marked by the works of the flesh? Or is your life producing the fruits of the new creation? The Apostle Paul challenges us then to look to Christ, that his work of sanctification might continue, his work of cultivating us as our gardener might continue. And our second point then, is to then to think about the gardener's instrument, the instrument of the new creation. We say, how then does Jesus Christ cultivate my life and cultivate spiritual fruit in my life? How do I grow in these things? Yes, I, I long for this, these things, right? The Apostle Paul says that there, is, there are these warring principles, the flesh and the spirit, and the flesh keeps us from doing that which we want to do. I desire Love. I desire joy, I desire peace, I desire gentleness, I desire self-control. How then are these things produced in my life? Well, again, Paul's whole point has been saying that it is not a matter of simply the, the common phrase, pulling up your bootstraps, I actually don't even really know what that fully means, but it's a common phrase, <laughs> and just trudging along down the, the path of obedience, Human willpower, just making my life act like this. Paul is saying instead that that Jesus Christ, as the gardener of the new creation, supernaturally works these fruits in you by his Holy Spirit. Paul said this earlier in Galatians 3, kind of in in, in an implied sense, in an indirect sense. But he says in Galatians 3, verse 2, he asks this question, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course, it was by faith you received the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Right Again, it, Paul's asking in a kind of quizzical sense, he's like, Does this make any sense to you? If you began the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit, are you now perfecting the Christian life, um, cultivating the Christian life, now by the flesh? Paul's saying, of course not. You began by the Spirit, now the Christian life is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus Christ uses the Spirit as the instrument of the new creation, the Spirit is producing in your life, The fruit of the new creation. Now, there is um, a tremendous amount of Old Testament background to this. And I would love to open it all up. If you have further questions, um, I would love to, to discuss that with you. But we can at least briefly say a few things, I think, to better understand why the Apostle Paul is speaking of the fruit of the Spirit as that which is cultivated in us by Christ. And part of that, right, you can kind of think back to maybe some well-known passages in the Old Testament. You can think about back to creation itself. On the third day, Christ, um, rather, well, I guess Christ does, as the Word of God, creates um, fruit-bearing trees on, on day three. And then on day six, in a kind of parallel, he creates people. He creates men and, men and women made in his image. And he gives them this instruction, echoing the word that he spoke of as fruitful trees. He says to his image bearers, he says to you, be fruitful. Now, we often take that in, and I think it's correct, right? He's telling them to have children, right? And and produce image bearers made in his image. But we also can't negate or even overlook the spiritual component of that as well. The part of being fruitful has a deeply spiritual component to it producing spiritual fruits, that they might be people who, who, who exude and who produce righteousness and holiness and knowledge of the Lord. These are the things that God's people are to be fruitful in. Now we know that by eating of the forbidden fruit, Adam plunges himself and all of humanity into sin, into death, no longer producing good fruit. Now all humanity is born as bad trees, producing bad fruits. And part of the redemptive work of God then throughout the Old Testament is depicted as him taking bad trees and planting them by streams of water that they might produce fruit in its season. Think of Psalm 1. Think of the prophets where they speak of the people of God as oaks of righteousness. Tree imagery is filled throughout the Old Testament and worth uh, looking into more. But as the history of God's redemption progresses. He continues to use the imagery of trees as that which is to define the new creation and the new work that he's going to do because God's people, though he takes them and plants them in a new land, the promised land, they, instead of producing fruits, instead of being a vineyard that the Lord could receive good fruit from, they end up producing nothing but thorns and briars and nothing that brings the Lord glory. You can read Isaiah, right? Isaiah rebukes the people, the Lord through Isaiah rebukes the people as a vineyard that he had planted, but don't produce fruit. And so the prophets look forward to a day when God will make his people spiritually fruitful. And there's these two passages I think we can turn to uh, to see this. The first is in Isaiah Uh, chapter 32. You can turn there with me if you uh, would like, or simply listen carefully. So Isaiah chapter 32, and we'll just read a few verses there, uh, beginning at verse 9. The main verse that I want us to focus on, though, is verse 15. But notice what it says here. This is the prophet Isaiah looking forward, prophesying of God's redemption that he will work in the new covenant. It says there, rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice, you complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come, right? So he's lamenting uh, the fact that God's people are not producing fruit. There's no harvest for the Lord. It goes on to say, Tremble, you women who are at ease, shudder, you complacent ones, strip and make yourselves bare and tie a sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant field, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens of forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Right? So it's a desolate picture. That the that, that Isaiah is picturing it's one of judgment, and God's judgment is often depicted in these kind of this kind of terms. Um, no harvest is being produced, but now notice the turn. What takes place here, verse fifteen? This will continue, as it says, verse fifteen, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness will become a fruitful field. And the fruitful field will be deemed a forest. Right? So there's this great turn that, the, I, that Isaiah looks forward to when his people who were fruitless will now be producing an abundance of fruit. And how will it be accomplished? The Spirit, as he says there, will be poured out from on high. One more passage in Isaiah. You get the same idea in Isaiah uh, chapter 57. Again, you have a message of judgments, of desolation, but then you get this great turn in verse 14 of Isaiah 57. It says this, It shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I be angry forever. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. But he went on backsliding in a way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And we'll end our reading there of of Isaiah. And so there's a lot that can be said, but the basic idea here is that Isaiah looked forward to a day... When the people of God would no longer be fruitless, right? their lives no longer lived in disobedience and just taking on the character of the world around them with all of its rivalries and dissensions and fighting and sexual immorality and impurity, but instead their lives would produce the fruit that is proper to God, the fruit of the new creation that is coming. And again, how will this be accomplished? by the instrument of the Spirit being poured out upon uh, the church. And so, to kind of pull back for one second, right, we have seen how the gardener of the new creation is Jesus Christ, who cultivates fruit, spiritual fruit in our lives, not by simply just demanding of us, but by himself, what's uh, gardening terminology, uh, hoeing and weeding and pulling things up, right? You, can, you, you all know it, um, by his spirit, right? That's the work of Christ in our lives. It's the instruments that Christ uses uh, for us. And so thirdly now, we think about, we, we thought the gardener of the new creation, the instrument of the new creation, and then lastly, we want to think about the fruit of the new creation, Right, as the Apostle Paul has been uh, saying, right, there is this basic contrast to the Spirit who works in us, the fruit of the new creation, and then there is the flesh who works in us, or tries to work in us, in the people of God, the works belonging to the present evil age. And so Paul then gives a list of both of those things, and he says first regarding the works of the flesh that they're evident, that these are things that clearly, evidently belong to not to the new creation that is coming. Or they have no part in the new creation, the kingdom of God. But it's evident that they belong here, to the present evil age. And these things, and again, Paul lists 15 of them, and so we're not going to spend a ton of time working through what every single one of them means. But you can kind of get a general idea that they have to do primarily with sexual immorality, which we see rampant in our day, just as it was in, in Paul's day. Uh, you see it in terms of divisiveness and fighting among people. Relationships are, are broken and relationships are, are hard and they're filled with fighting and cutting and biting and devouring. These are the things that mark the present evil age, things that when we see around us shouldn't necessarily surprise us or shock us. But notice just a list. We can read them uh, again just briefly and highlight a few things about them. These are the works that belong to the present evil age Motivated by uh, the flesh. There it says, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, right? Sexual sins. Secondly, he moves on to kind of a broader term of idolatry. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Um, Idolatry and sorcery, right? You're looking to the things of this earth, And you're putting your trust in them, you're looking for them to save you, to rescue you. For us, typically in in our 21st century, right, it's looking to bank accounts, it's looking to political leaders, it's looking to whoever it might be, right, we can make idols of those things, but those things belong to the present evil age that they cannot ultimately deliver as Christ alone can. Then he moves on to various works of the flesh that divide people and strain relationships, He says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And um, all of these things, right? It's very evident that these things destroy communities. That's why Paul is saying these things must not be among the church community. They must be put to death and crucified and thrown off. But, right, no society could ever thrive if these sins, if these works of the flesh are Promoted, are praised, are um, um, supported, whatever it might be, right? No society would ever thrive because these things destroy the idea of a society. They destroy the idea of a community. And so these things Paul is saying must not be true of the church community as the people of the new creation. He adds also just these general um, uh, sins of life where he says also envy. Uh, which would also be relational, but also drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? Paul's not giving an exhaustive list. He's reminding us, like, there are the things like these that just define the present evil age. Now, you may feel in your heart, like, yeah, these are the things that define even our own age. And these are the things that I I desire to be delivered from. I don't want to take part in these. I don't want to experience these. Well, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that deliverance is offered solely in him. And not by doing anything, but by trusting and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That he died for my sins, that he's been raised unto a new creation for me. And I belong to him, right? That's Paul's point in uh, Galatians as he encourages the church. Right? He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, right? It's possible to belong to Jesus, That he might deliver you from the present evil age. And these are the things that mark the flesh as its operative in the present evil age. And it stands in contrast then to the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that belongs to the new creation, the fruit that our gardener, Jesus Christ, is cultivating in our lives. And again, just as the works of the flesh, the list that Paul gives is not comprehensive. So too, the fruit of the Spirit is not comprehensive as if this is the only things, but it certainly is a helpful list for us to think about and maybe take stock of. As a tree, am I producing, as a tree of the new creation, planted by streams of living water, are these being produced in my life? And am I looking to Jesus Christ to produce these in my life by his grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit? It's a question worth asking. Again, we can kind of go through these uh, somewhat briefly um, as the Apostle Paul lays them out for us. He says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, right, the fruit of the new creation, that which is imported into the present evil age because we are a new creation in Christ, those fruits consist of love. And I'll just give a very brief uh, definition that I have written down next to each of of these fruits. Love, in terms of self-sacrificial concern for others, that manifests itself in action. Joy, a deep sense of contentment and pleasure in God and in his ways. Peace, a cessation of hostilities with God, of course, and also with others, right? Not having hostility, but, but peace among one another. Patience, remaining calm while we wait and while we endure hardships. Kindness, uh, being helpful or beneficial to others, and it's often connected to generosity. Goodness, having an interest in the welfare of others. Faithfulness, being loyal uh, to Christ and to his church and to other people. Gentleness, uh, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance, but instead having humility and meekness and being considerate of others. And then finally, the ninth one he lists, self-control, ability to restrain one's emotions, desires, and actions. Uh, We were at the men's group yesterday. Pastor Paul had asked the men, what's the difference between self-control and willpower? And uh, our brother Eddie Urban responded, well, willpower is man-made, right? It's it's the bootstraps thing again, right? But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And each of these things, right, we often could think of these things as sort of ordinary things that should be common but we have to keep in mind that these are of course the fruit of the spirit these are supernatural things and so it means that when we see these things evident in our own life and evident in the lives of our brother and sister in the church we should respond with thankfulness to god father thank you that you made so and so so loving father thank you you've made so and so so gentle Father, thank you you've made so-and-so have such great self-control in the midst of this situation, right? Have you ever thought to do that? And I think, I don't think we do often because we often forget that the fruit of the Spirit truly it are um, supernatural gifts produced in us by uh, the Holy Spirit as Christ cultivates them um, in us. And so the fruit of the Spirit, as we produce it in our lives today, in the present evil age, these fruits, you could say, are supernatural. These, these fruits are otherworldly. And therefore, they often can taste quite odd to the world. Now, some may taste and, and through that come to know Christ, because in many ways, all of these fruits are things that are proper, first and foremost, to Christ, right? Right? Christ as the one who loves, is joyful, is peaceful, is patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-control, right? These are the things that are preeminently in Jesus Christ. Which is why as we belong to Jesus Christ and by his spirit he produces them in our lives that we might be more and more like him. And so as we do that, right, as your life produces these fruits of the new creation, the world may taste it and hate it because they love their sin. And they, and they love the present evil age. Or, by God's grace, they may taste of those fruits of your life and through them come to know Christ. As you explain to them why it is your life is the way that it is. Why it is that your life does not look like the world around you. Why it is you're able to be self-controlled while the world is flying off the hinge you know, I was, uh, with Susanna this past week, we were eating out, and um, this often happens, right? We're in the city, and uh, this couple or three people are next to us. And I remember the way in which this man was speaking, um, and I remember afterwards I'm talking to Susanna, and I'm just like, this man has no self control. Like they're discussing a situation, and he just, in the midst of you know, a place where you, you know people are listening and watching, or whatever this man just flies off the hinges and just says whatever he comes to his mind, he can't control himself. And it, it reminds me of just an example of, of the way in which the world operates. Whatever emotions boil up, whatever desires come up, that's what I'm going to act upon. But notice Paul says for the Christian that there are things that we might desire that we're not to engage in. Right? He says to the, to the church... He says that um, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, right? So Paul is reminding us that contrary to our current societal opinion, desire does not mean we ought to do it, right? Again, as new creations, we aren't to act purely upon desire, Now, we pray and ask that God would make us desirous of the things that he desires. We pray that he would change our affections, that we would love the things that he loves, so that our desires do line up with the Lord's. But not everything we desire, just because we desire it, is proper for us to engage in. The Christian is called, as Paul says here, to put to death the flesh. And he reminds us that we are able to do this because the flesh has already been crucified. Right as a Christian you have the power by Christ and by his spirit to not engage in the desires of the flesh. Again notice what he says verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. He doesn't it's not an imperative here. He's not saying must crucify, but he's saying those who belong to Christ Jesus are united to him by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit have crucified the flesh, with its passions and its desires. It leads to a sort of paradox here when we think about the Christian life and producing the fruit of the Spirit. If the flesh has already been crucified, why do I still struggle with its desires? And in many ways, this paradox kind of gets at the heart of um, our sanctification. If I could read um, a quote, if I can find the quote wherever I put it, um, by Kevin D. Young. He had written an excellent book, if you want a book on sanctification, called The Whole in Our Holiness. And he reminds us of what the nature of our sanctification um, is as the people uh, of God. He says this. He says, Apart from our union with Christ, belonging to Christ, every effort to imitate Christ, right, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, no matter how noble and inspired at the outset, inevitably leads to legalism and spiritual defeat. But, once you understand the doctrine of union with Christ, belonging to Christ by faith, you see that God doesn't ask us to attain to what we're not. God doesn't ask us to attain to what we're not. He only calls us to accomplish what already is. The pursuit of holiness is not an effort to do just what Jesus did, right? WWJD is the common phrase. Rather, it's the fight to live out the life that has already been made alive in Christ. And so he goes on to add, if I had to summarize New Testament ethic in one sentence, it would be, be who you are. That's the basic idea of the Christian life. Be who you are in Jesus Christ. Again, we can often think of, you know, hearing this, okay, I must produce more fruit of the Spirit. We can often think of the Christian life then as become what I am not. Right? Become something that I'm not already. Right? Be something. But the Christian life instead is be who you already are in Christ. Be consistent with what Christ has done and live that out in your life. Be who you are. Not in your flesh, but in the Spirit. And in Christ. And so this is uh, Paul's exhortation to us as the church. Just to come to a conclusion here, right? He holds Jesus Christ up as the gardener of the new creation. And he reminds us that Jesus Christ is cultivating spiritual fruit in our life that is supernatural by the work of his Holy Spirit. And therefore our, life, our lives are to be lives planted by streams of living water. Producing these fruit, trusting in the Lord to produce these fruits, and having the great confidence that he who began this work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And to know with certainty that there is nobody more concerned and desirous that you produce these fruits than the gardener of your soul, Jesus Christ himself. And so let us look to him. And let our lives then be filled with the fruit of the Spirit as we relate to one another and as we go out into the world as his people. Let our lives be filled with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. I might have missed one, but let our lives be filled with those things. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you humbly and confidently that as you have instructed us through the Apostle Paul, Uh, that you desire good fruit to be produced in our lives, we come asking that that would be so. That as we look to Jesus Christ and are reminded of our union with him by faith, that we belong to him, that our lives would produce as good trees the fruit of the spirit. And so, Father, may this be accomplished more and more in our midst for your glory and for the good of your people and for the advance of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.